The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 17. And we're going to return to the last verses in this chapter. And our subject, this has really kind of been a hot topic for the last few weeks as we've talked about Christians and citizenship. Um, we, we've just had a lot of discussion on this, a lot of going back and forth in, in our uh, forum class. And then a lot has been said in the messages thus far about Christians and government. And when I add the word Christian to the word citizenship, uh, I hope you understand that I'm speaking about the responsibilities that we have as God's people of being citizens of two worlds. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that might be a little bit hard for you to understand if you're not used to reading the King James Bible. But conversation is a word that's used in various ways in the Bible. Sometimes it means a conversation, just like you talk with one another, like we normally use the word. And then uh, sometimes it means the way that we live our lives. When he speaks of conversation, he's talking about the manner of your life. But here in this particular passage in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the word is best translated as citizenship. And the apostle is telling us that when we become believers in Jesus Christ, that we become citizens of heaven, citizens of a heavenly country. Or as Hebrews says, it talked about Abraham who looked for a country whose builder or a city whose builder and maker is God. And that verse Uh, This verse, Philippians 3.20, just really contains a wonderful promise, even though many people don't recognize what it is, that this verse is one that guarantees our salvation, that our new birth that we have in Christ makes us immediately citizens of heaven, that we're not waiting till we die to find out if we're going to get to go to heaven, but when we leave this life, we'll have our passport, we'll enter the pearly gates of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the city of heaven, and we'll have our passport that says, born again believer in Jesus Christ. That is a thrilling promise. I never have to worry about my salvation. I don't have to worry about losing it. I don't have to worry about being good enough to maintain it because I'm not going to heaven because of my goodness. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I go to heaven because of what he did for me. And I thank the Lord for that. I have believed in him. But I also know that the Bible teaches that every day that I live, every day that I'm on earth waiting to get to heaven, I am to be a good citizen of God's kingdom. I represent my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember that if you're saved, that you represent Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for you. And God expects you to be a good citizen of his country. And I know the Bible tells me how I am to act, how I'm to live my life, because there are so many passages where this is spelled out in lifestyle, passages about lifestyle, passages about obedience and holiness and also the fruits of the Spirit. And so, when you believe, you become a citizen of heaven. 
but we know that we're still living in the world. We're still citizens of this earthly country. We have a dual citizenship. And God expects us as his people to be no less good citizens of this country in which we live. We're to be model citizens of this country. We're to obey all of the laws of our country, whether they're good or bad, because when we do, we're also obeying the heavenly law, the laws of God, and that is because God is the one who ordained our human government. Oh, we're studying this passage in Matthew 17, and uh, Jesus taught his disciples a, lessons, a lesson on citizenship, and it's really just a very brief lesson. He, he's teaching them here about taxation, and what we've done is taken the passage just like writers, other writers of the New Testament have done, and they expand on Jesus' teaching. And so we're taking just that lesson that he gives on taxation and expanding that into how Christians are to live under the government of these United States. If you're a citizen of this country or whatever country that you might be, how do you live under that government? Well, I'd like us to look at Matthew 17. We're going to read the story here again. If you'd stand with me as we read God's word, Matthew 17, beginning with verse number 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth your master pay tribute? And there it's talking about taxes. He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, that take, and give unto them for me and thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reading of your word, and we ask, Lord, that you'd help us again today as we open up this text and learn what you'd have us to know about Christians and government. Help us to... Have understanding today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now I want to take just a minute to give you the overview of the passage uh, again. Uh, Jesus and the disciples had been away from their main base in Capernaum. That's in Galilee, and that's where Jesus based this particular part of his ministry. And he and the disciples had been away from there for a long time. They'd been traveling around Galilee, and Jesus, as you know, had been healing people, and he was teaching people, and uh, did all kinds of things, even raising people from the dead, just all kinds of miracles that Jesus did. They even left Israel for a short time and went across the border of Tyre and Sidon into Gentile territory, and we have the story there where we read about uh, Jesus speaking with the Syrophoenician woman. So they came back into Israel... And in the first part of this chapter, Jesus went up on a mountain, and he was in the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's in the far northern part of Israel, and Jesus went on a mountain in that particular area, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he was transfigured in front of them. That means that he was, his, he was changed. He was changed into uh, his glory. His, his clothes became glistening white. And those three disciples were actually able to see the glory of God. 
And of course, that proved that Jesus is God. It proved that uh, Jesus was actually using it to show them that he is the king who's going to come in the glory of his father. But after that was finished, they returned to Capernaum and Peter was met by a person who was a tax collector. Uh, This was one who was collecting temple taxes from the temple in Jerusalem. And he asked Peter a question. He said, does your master, speaking of Jesus, does your master pay taxes? And we don't know if that was an honest question or whether he was just trying to trip Peter up and they were trying to get at Jesus to accuse him of something. But whatever the reason was, Peter said, well, yes, of course, he pays taxes. Well, Peter went back to the house where Jesus and the other disciples were and Jesus met him. He knew what had taken place. And so he asked Peter a question. He said, do the kings of the earth collect taxes from their own children or do they collect them from their subjects? I mean, that's the gist of what he's asking here. And Peter said, well, the the king takes taxes from his subjects. He doesn't take take it from his children. And Jesus told Peter, well, you've answered that right. A king does not pay taxes for himself or for his children. And in that exchange, Jesus was teaching that there was no need for him to pay the temple tax, that he was the Lord of the temple, that the temple was built for him. The temple is all about his worship. And so if he were to pay a tax, that would be the same as paying himself. But he said something else to Peter. He said, but lest we offend them, I want you to pay that tax. He said, I want you to go to the Sea of Galilee, and there you're going to cast in a hook, and when you do, you're going to pull up a fish, and in that fish's mouth will be a coin, and you can use that coin to pay the tax for me and for you. And the reason that Jesus did that was because he did not want to be needlessly subjected to the scrutiny of people who did not understand who he was. He didn't want to put an object in front of of the work that he was doing. Now, he did show that he was the omnipotent Lord, and he taught that to Peter. I mean, going to the Sea of Galilee and putting in that hook and pulling up a fish, one fish out of all of those in the sea that had a coin in its mouth, that proves that he's God, doesn't it? Peter knew that he was God, but Jesus said, pay the tax because we don't want to offend them. We have greater purposes that we need to fulfill. Well, that's a great story, great message that Jesus teaches in the story. Now, we looked at that. This is our third message now, and we've looked at this uh, a couple of things already. The first one is God's revelation of the cross for citizenship. That there is a way that we become citizens of God's country, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus dying on the cross is the means of us uh, becoming citizens of heaven. And so we read here in verses number 22 and 23 that Jesus talks about his death. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Now these are the last months of the last year of Jesus' ministry. From this point, he is on his way to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he'll be taken by the religious leaders. He'll be taken by the Roman government and they'll put him on a cross. And that was the Father's plan from the beginning. That's why Jesus came. He came for the death of the cross. 
And as you look at Jesus going towards Jerusalem, you'll find that he's carefully orchestrating every event that takes place. And then when the right time comes, in his own time, he was willing to surrender himself to the death of the cross. And that's the way that we become citizens of heaven. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that he died to save us from our sins. And what Jesus did on that cross was to purchase our citizenship. He, re, he, he delivered us from the bondage of sin. He took us out of the kingdom of Satan. He bought us out of the tyranny of Satan. And he brought, bought us out of slavery. Brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the freedom of the light of his kingdom of righteousness. That's what we talked about in the first message. You need to get that fact straight in your mind before anything else. That if you are going to be saved and if you're going to go to heaven, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. There is no other way. You can't go around him. And that's why Jesus talks about dying on the cross. Now, we expanded on all of this teaching, as I said. And now, secondly, in the last message, we looked at God's recognition of human citizenship. That while we are citizens of heaven, we are still citizens of this world. And because we are Christians does not mean that we have no obligations. That some way, we, uh, somehow we have become holy and we don't, we, we're above everybody else and we don't have to do what everybody else does. No, we're citizens of this country. And God has given us a government that we live under that's for our good. And when we are in subjection to the government of our country, we are actually also in subjection to God. Now, Paul and the other apostles lived under the Roman government. It was a hostile government. They, they were often cruel to Christians and killed Christians. And yet we never find anywhere in Scripture any instructions that we are to do anything against our government. Paul taught people to live peaceably as much as we possibly can under the government that God has given us. He has not taught us to be militants. He's not taught us to try to overthrow the government. And as I've said before, I even think that we have to be very careful about how we petition the government, the way that we do that so that we don't uh, do what Jesus was trying to avoid, and that's put an object in people's way, an obstacle in their way that they might not believe in Christ because of some attitude that we have. So government is given to us because it promotes the welfare of the people, it maintains good order in society, it works for our common good, and we ought to be very quick and careful to understand that we live under a human government. We live under men. And if we replace the government that we live under, what have we got? Still a government of men. Still a government of sinful men. And so God has a way for us to live under our government. Uh, Christ is going to come. We read about it in the 19th chapter of Revelation a moment ago. He will come and rule in righteousness. That will be a perfect government. But until then, God says, be in subjection to the higher authorities. Our main purpose here is not politics and we want to change our, you know, everything that's wrong in our society. We'd love to do that. But our main goal here is not politics. Our main goal is to win people to Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not best served by any kind of anarchy. The gospel of Christ is best served by peaceful submission. 
Now, the world is not going to be changed by passing laws. There's no legislative body that's going to be able to change the world for Christ. This world, this country, is changed inwardly, person by person, as we give them the gospel of Christ, and they believe that gospel, and they're saved. So God's telling us... uh, He's not opposed to human government. He has given us government. He's delegated authority to it. Now, in light of that, we need to go a little bit further today. And we're going to discuss now our responsibility as secular citizens. If God has ordained the government and God approves of the government, then what are we to do as citizens of the world? Well, the best way that we can help our government is to be good Americans. Uh, We ought to use the rights and privileges that we have always for the best advantage of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul did not denounce Roman citizenship. When he became a Christian, he said, well, I'm not worried about Roman citizenship anymore. Now I'm only worried about the heavenly country, so I won't spend any time talking about what goes on with the world. No, the apostle Paul used his Roman citizenship at times. He he used it to his best advantage in order to promote the gospel of Christ. Citizens of Rome were proud to be Romans just like Americans are proud to be Americans. On our last election, and the one before that, and the one before that, and so on, it's presented some really perplexing problems for Christians understanding what should we do There are so many things that have gone wrong. Uh, We have, of course, a democracy. We have freedom to change our government. There are ways that we can act to change government. And, And those things didn't exist for Christians in the first century. So it becomes a problem for us living in this type of society, in this government, as to how far do we go to involve ourselves in the politics of our country? How much should we do in trying to change things. Well, I'm going to give you an opinion that really might not sit well, sit well with some of you, but I don't believe that the business of government is the business of the church. I think it's a big mistake for churches, uh, church bodies, to involve themselves in trying to influence uh, legislation one way or another and try to Christianize a secular government. I, I don't think that's our business to do. But there are churches... And it's happening all over our country that are so politically oriented, they get totally distraught when any kind of legislation is passed that seems to be against what they think it ought to be or how the country ought to be run. And so they just mobilize entire congregations for politics. And in the, in the process of that, they forget about the gospel of Christ. They, they don't really, really pay attention anymore to, to what they really should be doing. And so when something goes wrong, their head falls into their hands and they worry about it and they say, oh me, oh my, what are we going to do? The world is, pardon my expression, as they say, going to hell in a handbasket. What are we going to do? We're just totally distraught about this. Well, I I don't see the apostles doing that. I I don't see the apostles in the midst of persecution and in the middle of a hostile government. They don't say, what are we going to do now? Uh, what, what, what are we going to do? What, 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 what can we do about government? I mean, it's, 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 we can't get the gospel out now. It's so hard. It's, so, it's just so difficult. We can't do it. What are we going to do? No, what the apostles said was, what do you expect? You live in a world that hates Christ. 
And if it hated Christ, it will hate you. Jesus said that himself. What do you expect? The world is going to be against you. And that's because you're not of this world any longer. You are of a different world. We live here, but we're from a different world. Some of you are very strange and it seems like you come from a very different world, but it's, we are in a different world. So Jesus said it. He's the one that started it. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And he meant that our business is not the world's business. Our business is the king's business, the king of kings. So the church needs to stay out of politics because we don't change the world by politics. As an individual Christian, I do believe that you have the responsibility to, to vote as a good moral Christian, but you involve yourself only to the extent that it does not hinder your work for Christ. And if you are a Christian that lets politics dominate your thinking all the time and that's what you're concerned about, you've got the wrong thing dominating your thinking. Now, having said that, What's our responsibility to the government? Well, I find three imperatives in Scripture for Christians in relation to government. The first is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So Paul says your first duty to your government is to pray for those that are in authority. Even if you don't agree with them, you are to pray for them. He even went as far as to say give thanks for them. I have to confess to you, I have trouble giving thanks for, a, for the president when his political agenda is anti-God, about as anti as you can get, but that's what I'm told to do. And that's because he's the person in authority. And why is that so important? Because God's the one that put him there. I know that's hard. It's one of the hardest things that we, that we can accept. But our president, folks, has been appointed by God. Does that mean that God approves of all of his policies? We, it couldn't be because we know God's not the author of evil. When the president favors abortion, when he agrees with harvesting embryos for stem cell research, God doesn't approve of that any more than he did Nero burning Christians. When his agenda is, is for homosexuality and gay marriage, God doesn't approve of that. But God still expects us to pray for those that are in authority. Now, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 13. This is a scripture that we looked at last week, and it is a definitive scripture on Christians and government. And you need to keep this chapter open because we'll come back to it. I'll refer to it several times. But here's what Paul says in verse number 1, Romans chapter 13. He said, Let every soul be subject under the higher powers. Now remember, he's living under the Roman government. Let every soul be subject under the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. You know what that's telling you? It's telling you that it's useless for you to fret and worry about who the president is because whether he knows it or not or whether you know it or not, he serves at the discretion of God. He wouldn't be there unless God let him be there. And he might totally despise God's authority, but he serves because God put him there. As a Christian, you can flourish 
under the government no matter what kind it is. No matter what they're doing, you can flourish if you are obeying God. You can live under a democratic government. You can live in a monarchy. You can live under communism. You can live under a total, uh, a, a, a total totalitarian regime. Why? Because God's the one who's ultimately in control. The very best that you can ever do for a leader that you don't personally like is to pray for him. Pray that he will govern rightly. Pray for his success. Certainly, don't pray against the president. Pray for his success that he'll govern rightly. Now, this was particularly important for people in Paul's day. People were very suspicious of Christians. Often Christians were accused of being seditionist. Wrongly, they were accused. And all that did was just fuel the hatred that there was against God and his people. And so if Christians were to purposely turn against the government, that'd be like throwing gasoline on an already, already raging fire. And that's what I was talking about earlier. How are you going to win people to the Lord if you've already alienated them by your politics? So I think we have to be careful about it. I, I find it hard sometimes to keep quiet about it myself. And if I'm not careful, my politics can keep people out of church. I, there was a time several years ago where someone left the church because they said, well, that church, I won't say what party, but that church is too much of one party. And they, and they left the church. Now, I like what Brother Dalton said to me in the office just a few minutes before we came in. And he made a very good point. He said, you know, it's not often or I haven't ever run across anybody that said, I'm not going to go to church because of your politics. But he said, I've run into people all the time who says, I'm not going to go to church because you're hypocrites. The way that you live your life, you, you, you do all kinds of things that you say Christians don't do. But I watch you. I see what you do. You know, that's very important, folks. If you want to influence people for Jesus Christ, you better live like a Christian. They're going to expect that from you. But there's also this truth that we're talking about politics and how much we're to be involved. So if you're a Christian and you agree with me politically, that's not a reason for you to leave the church. I mean, the tie that binds us is not whether we're independents or Democrats or Republicans. That's not the tie that binds Christians together. The tie that binds us together is the love that we have for Jesus Christ and the work that he's called us to do. We are bound together by the gospel. And if you've forgotten that and, and you have some other thing you think binds you to the church, then you've forgotten what the true purpose is so again the bible says here paul said we're commanded or he commands to pray for those that are in authority they have heavy pressures on them they make life and death decisions i mean goodness knows folks that guy sitting in the white house has enough power under his thumb to blow half the world up pray that he uses his power rightly and pray that he will not oppose the gospel of jesus christ now, the second imperative for Christians in human government is that we must honor those in authority. In that same discourse about government in Romans 13, we look at verse number 7, where Paul says, Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, I can sum up the first part of that very easily in one, in one short statement. Pay your taxes. That's what it says. He says, pay your taxes. Government's been ordained for your good, so pay up. 
Pay your fair share. Pay what they tell you to pay. Government doesn't operate for free. They've got to have money to operate. That's for, you know, I know you hate taxes, but you've got to pay them. The Bible tells you, pay your taxes. Same thing's true in the church. We don't have a tax. Although sometimes I think that might be good if we just, you sign, the, you become a member of the church, you say, well, I agree to pay a tax to the church to keep things up. But God doesn't tax us in the church. But he does say, tithe. He does say, bring your offerings. He does say, support your church because it doesn't operate without money either. So we're to honor the man in office. And that's not because he deserves personal honor, but because the office demands honor. There are people, as you know, in our government that are reprehensible. Personally, they are reprehensible. We've had adulterers and liars. We've had thieves, heathens, everything else in our government. But still the Bible says, honor them for the sake of their office because they have been divinely appointed. Did you know the Apostle Paul showed that in his personal example? In his own example, he showed that when you're not in agreement with the government, you're still to honor them. He appeared before King Agrippa, and he gave his testimony. And that right after he was finished, Festus, the Roman government, a Roman governor, spoke up. And here's the exchange that took place between them in Acts 26. And as he thus spake for himself, that's Paul speaking, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth made thee mad, make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad. Listen, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Paul called that heathen Roman governor noble. That was a man that despised his God, despised Jesus Christ, despised what he was doing. But Paul did not disrespect him. There was another time. Turn to Acts 23, if you would, very quickly. Acts 23, this is another time that Paul appeared before those that are in authority. This time it was the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, That's the Jewish council. And there was an interesting exchange that took place between Paul and and, uh, the people of the council. Acts chapter 23, and this is part of the affair that caused Paul to end up being put in chains and taken to Rome as a prisoner. Acts 23, verse number 1. Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And said Paul, I wist not, or I did know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now Paul got a little bit testy. He was, he was trying to speak, and the high priest commanded, Smite that guy, hit that guy in the mouth, and keep him quiet. For some reason, Paul didn't recognize that it was the high priest who said that. Maybe he wasn't sitting in the right spot that he normally would. Maybe he wasn't wearing the customary robe, the robes that he would wear. But for whatever reason, Paul didn't recognize who it was. But then he was made aware of it. And he'd spoken harshly against the man who was in authority. And immediately, Paul gave an apology. He said, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And so Paul showed him the proper respect, and then he quoted Scripture, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. 
And there's the lesson. Honor those that are in authority. Do not speak evil of your rulers. That's part of living as a good citizen of this world, while at the same time you own citizenship in heaven. Now, one more imperative about our government. Thirdly, we must obey those in authority. Now, let's go back to Romans 13 again. Let every soul, verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. And the Bible is teaching us there that when you obey those in authority, you are obeying the law. When you obey human laws, you are obeying God's law. See, the command to obey government is just as godly as obeying the Ten Commandments. Why? Because God created human government. God gave them their authority. We obey it. Human government is not opposed to God's laws. Now, to say that Paul obeyed human government would be just an understatement because there's probably no person that really understood the laws of God and what we're commanded to do like Paul knew them. I mean, he corrected himself when he found he had spoken disrespectfully to the high priest. He knew all about those things. And when he did, he knew that he was following the greatest example that was ever given, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the king of the universe. And yet when he came to this earth, he made himself the servant of men. He made himself even a servant of human government. I've already alluded to it once, but we see how Jesus respected human authority. When the Pharisees tried to trip him up and they tried to make, get him to make either a seditious statement or to break the scriptures, here's what happened. The, fair, the crafty Pharisee said, Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny, and he saith unto them, Whose image is the super, uh, image, whose is the image in the superscription? We read this. They said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith unto them, he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. See, the, the government of Caesar was hostile to Christianity. Jesus knew, because he's God, he knew exactly what they were going to do to him. He knew that they were going to kill him. But he never once told a disciple, break the laws of the government. Christians are to be law-abiding citizens. The only law that a Christian should ever break is a law that is against Scripture and a law that is against a sanctified conscience. And you may say, well, there's my out. My sanctified conscience says, don't pay those taxes. That's not what the Bible means. Your sanctified conscience doesn't say that you can be a conscientious objector to taxes and other things. The only time that you refuse to obey the government is when human laws come in conflict with God's laws. That's what Peter and the apostles meant when they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see, they'd been told not to preach the gospel. They'd been ordered. You can't preach in his name any longer. And the apostles said, we're not going to obey that law. We obey God rather than men because that's a law that's directly against what Jesus Christ told us to do. If the government was to say, pastors that perform any weddings must perform all weddings, that's a law that I would break. 
I would never marry people that are not Christians. I don't think that's right. And I would never marry a homosexual couple. I don't think that's right. That's against God's law. If the law comes and says, well, you can't discriminate against in the, in the hiring of homosexual, uh, homosexuals in your school, then that's a law that we would, re- break, we would break because that's against God's law. God's law supersedes all human laws. One commentator said, it isn't that every law is right as God judges right. It isn't that every law is equitable as God judges equity. It isn't that every law is even sensible as God would judge what is sensible. But we are to submit to every law of man for the Lord's sake. Why? Because if you're going to be perceived by your society as a good, upright, honest person with integrity and character and moral quality and proper values... They are going to evaluate you on the basis of what they understand to be the code of right and wrong. And society sets up laws and rules, and then it says the people who keep these are the law-abiding people. The people who fight these and don't abide by these, they are anti-law. They are rebellious people. Now, do you understand what that means? It means that the world doesn't know what's holy and righteous and good. They don't understand what holiness and righteousness is. They make their laws without knowing whether they have anything to do with God. But you know what would happen if Christianity became a rebellious movement? If we said, you know something, we're not going to obey because that's a law that's not fair. We're not going to obey that law because we don't think it's equitable for all people. We're not going to obey that law because we don't think it's righteous enough. Well, if we did that, you know what would happen? We'd be out on the fringe with the crazies that are living in the woods somewhere, gathering up their guns and going to shoot people trying to overthrow their government. Is that good for the gospel of Christ? That's not good for the gospel. This is why Jesus said, go pay the tax, don't offend them. It doesn't serve any purpose to tick people off, people that don't have any spiritual understanding of the principle that Jesus was trying to teach Peter. He said, pay the tax. He was God, he didn't have to pay it, but he said, pay it because that was best for the gospel. So praying, honoring, obeying, that's what God demands of all Christians concerning human government. We're citizens of heaven, but that doesn't divorce us from obeying human government. Now let me give you one last thought, and uh, we're getting a little bit late, and, and we'll be finished here. But I've talked about politics, I've talked about church involvement, I've talked about um, inequities in government and laws that you may not like, but we're to obey them anyway. The apostles didn't have the luxury of living under a government that was just truly representative and one subject to change by the people. Now, we have ways to change government they didn't have. So I don't want to leave you with this impression that we should not try to change our government for the better. I'm not saying that what Christians should do is we sit idly by and we say, well, whatever will be, will be. Some call that fatalism. A Christian is not a fatalist. Fatalism is chaotic. It's random. It has no control. We are not fatalists because we know that God is in control. But because we believe that God is in control does not mean that we sit on our hands and we say, Lord, you just do whatever you're going to do. Just just do whatever it is and we'll just wait it out. No, we have to understand that God uses means. He always uses means. He can save people without you and me if he wants to. But he gave us the responsibility of preaching the gospel to people. That's the means that he uses to save people. He can accomplish his will if he wants to by just speaking from heaven and it's done. 
But God uses means. He tells us to pray about things. Prayer is one of the means. And the Bible teaches that God will do things that he otherwise would not do because you pray about them. We're we're commanded to pray. God uses prayer to accomplish his his will. So we need to consider that when we think about what we should do living in a country where we can change things. Is it okay for Christians to make changes in government? Well, of course it is. I mean, it's your duty to do so. You have the power to do what's right. When you have that power, do what's right. But only do it within the framework of the government that we have and only when it does not interfere in any way with the gospel of Christ. 237 years ago, we were given the greatest opportunity that any nation in the, uh, in the history of the world has ever been given. With the exception of God's choice of Israel as his own people, we have been given the best opportunity of anybody that's ever lived for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. More opportunities to reach the world than anybody's ever had. But do you know what's wrong with America? Well, you probably do. Y'all can raise your hand. Well, I've got, a, I got something that's wrong with America. Well... The real problem that we have is the slow degradation of the people of God. The moral and the just gave way to greed. What does the Bible say is the root of all evil? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And do you know what's happened to Christianity? Christians have become greedy People don't tithe because they love money. There's a new Christianity that's arisen that is a fake Christianity and it has money as its God. America is in trouble because of Christians. Not because of the president, not because of Congress, not because of the Supreme Court, because you might seem to forget, and we do often, that the government under which we live, the president, the Congress, the Supreme Court folks, is us. Our government is a reflection of us. And so the government is not going to change until the people in the pew, the Christian people, make a change themselves. Until they begin to follow God and live for God, have the holiness of God, do not expect anything to change. You're going to have to live for the Lord. Have you forgotten the wisdom that God gave through Solomon? He said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And there you have the key to good civil government. God ordained government. He knows best how to make it work. He knows how to use it for his glory and for our good. If all Christians would do what those verses say, trust the Lord, fear the Lord, depart from evil, we'd have a much different church, folks, and a much different United States of America. It starts right here in this group. Are you doing what God told you to do as a citizen of heaven and a citizen of this world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and Lord as a people in this church as a nation who a people who loves our nation a nation who at one time claimed to be a nation under God well we just pray that hearts would change pray Lord that you would
convict us of our sin, bring us back to what we should be doing, bring us back to holiness and righteousness in our lives, bring us back to the place where we can actually be an influence on people with the gospel of Christ. May we not turn people away by politics, but more importantly, may we not turn them away by the way that we are living our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone lost today that they would recognize that they need you as Savior. We read in the 19th chapter of Revelation what's coming. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of people, speak to your people as well. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.